1: I'm John Glenn Hill. Somehow, a good chunk of my best friends from college all ended up living in Texas. And I truly do have a great time every time I visit them in Dallas. The food is great, and the Texas State Fair is a lot of fun.
0: Millions of people will soon be visiting the State Fair of Texas, and a lot of
3: them
1: will be looking for the latest deep-fried food. There's cornbread sausage bombs, deep-fried sushi bombs, deep-fried- I had no clue pudding. you could even fry that many things. But still, it's not enough to get me to move there. Sorry, guys. Because I have so many friends in Texas, my ears do perk up when I hear any policy news out of the state. Like last year, when Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sent migrants to blue cities.
0: And breaking news this hour here in Los Angeles. A bus of migrants from Texas has arrived at a church here in L.A. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis
3: is under fire for using taxpayer dollars to organize flights of asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard.
1: Texas governor put more than four dozen asylum-seeking immigrants who had crossed the Texas border on a bus and sent them 1,700 miles north to New York City. Governor Abbott has sent 500 buses of migrants to Blue Cities. It's all part of Operation Lone Star. That's the name he's given to his efforts to fight illegal immigration in Texas. And now Abbott is back in the news for a different tactic of Operation Lone Star. The state of Texas has placed buoys and barbed wire along a border crossing site in Eagle Pass. And the Department of Justice is suing in retaliation based on an 1899 law called the Rivers and Harbors Act. To find out why water law and not immigration law is at the center of this legal battle, I called up a Texan.
3: My name is Gabriel Eckstein, and I'm the director of the Energy, Environmental, and Natural Resource Systems Law Program at Texas A&M University, where I'm also a professor of law.
1: I imagine when these buoys and razor wire were put in place at the end of late July, your ears perked up. I mean, do you remember your reaction? What what were you talking about when this happened?
3: Well, I, I will admit that I've always been a bit skeptical on the approach that the Texas government has taken toward immigration issues, border issues, water issues on the border. And so uh, I wasn't necessarily surprised that Texas took this action, but it also was just a whole huge step beyond what they've ever done before.
1: Could you describe the barrier, to me, because I, you know, when you look at pictures, you just sort of see these orange things floating in the water, and they don't look as, I guess, for lack of a better word, ominous, threatening. Yeah, like yeah. they're they're scary up close.
3: If you see them on land, it's not that scary until you actually come close and see some of the um, rotary chainsaw that's between each of these buoys. Now that that gets a little scary. But when they're on land, they're about four or five feet tall big, giant orange balls that are just strung together, connected to each other. And it's just like a Lego set. You just hook them up and add more uh, to each other. When they're in the middle of a river, you have to think about the perspective of you being in the river. Now, all of a sudden, you're not standing next to this four foot high, five foot high, six foot high buoy. You're looking up at a four, five, six foot high orange ball Now, you would think, okay, well, maybe in between the the two balls. Well, like I said, they actually have this round metal piece with uh, jagged teeth on it, which looks like a rotary saw. And it's right in between where the two buoys connect to each other so that you cannot actually put your hand on there or try, try to climb in between. Now, below the water level, they're anchored into the ground. So there's actually infrastructure underneath that you can't see into the riverbed. And in between, they actually have netting so that you cannot swim underneath them to get to the other side. So it's it's a pretty elaborate system.
1: And it's pretty long. Is it, a, I think I was reading, it's about the size of a football field? Three. Three football fields. Wow.
3: It's about a thousand feet long. And they put it in a particular section where uh, in the last year or two, for various reasons, where you've seen a higher number of uh, migrants crossing it's a bit shallower in that area it's uh, just south of eagle pass and it's a place where you've you've seen more migrants coming more recently
1: so the barrier was installed in early july and the justice department files the lawsuit shortly thereafter can you tell us a little bit about what the lawsuit contains what is the government arguing
3: they only addressed one statute, one federal statute, it's called the Rivers and Harbors Act from 1899. It's been around for quite a long time. And what that statute does is prohibits placing anything in a navigable water body without permission. Pretty simple. A couple different provisions in there uh, talking about structures and weirs and uh, anything that might be put inside the river or cause the river to change its course or change the flow or change the conditions of the river. And there's another provision that kind of builds on that, which is actually the first environmental provision that the United States has ever had at the federal level. And it says you can't dump anything into the river. Now, originally, this Rivers and Harbors Act, the whole purpose was navigation. So even the dumping of whether it's debris, wood, dirt, trash, was to keep The navigable water body, navigable. And that's what they sued on.
1: Could you explain to our audience kind of in basic terms what the government exactly is arguing in this lawsuit? The
3: statute itself is pretty simple. It says you can't put anything into a navigable water body without permission. And it's either permission of Congress, direct congressional uh, permission that, you know, Congress can create a new act saying, oh, we're going to build a dam on the river, well, that's permission. Uh, Or from the Army Corps of Engineers because Congress delegated the authority to manage these navigable waterways to the Army Corps of Engineers. One other point, navigable water bodies. These are rivers and lakes on which you can navigate. And under the Constitution, going back to a case from, I think it's 1824, because of what's called the Commerce Clause, anything that relates to navigation is considered part of the commercial transactions or relates to interstate commerce, and therefore is under federal congressional authority, not the state. So that is what gave Congress the right to enact the Rivers and Harbors Act. And under the act, got to get permission. Texas did not inform Congress or the Army Corps. They did not seek permission, and they went ahead Intentionally and placed this infrastructure, the, these buoys that are attached to the to the riverbed. They also put uh, concertina wire on the banks, which is also essentially infrastructure. And both of these actions arguably are in violation of of the act.
1: So, Governor Abbott's buoy barrier was allegedly installed unlawfully. Can you kind of walk us through that process of, you know, what if what if this had been all kind of done on the up and up? If it had been installed legitimately, what would that look like? So really interesting, the Dallas
3: Morning News did this story that various uh, offices in Texas actually contacted the uh, various federal offices and asked them about this. And they were told, no, this would be illegal. So, in fact, this is not to something was that, that was uh, done on the sly in the sense without mm. – they actually asked about this and tried to get information, and they did it in spite of the f- being told that this would be in violation. Now, had they done it in accordance with the law, they would have gone to the Army Corps of Engineers and said, we want to build this string of buoys we're going to put them at this location, this far off land. We're going to connect them to the, the riverbed using this material. Uh, we're going to have netting and so on. And the Army Corps would then have done studies, research into what would a series of buoys, a thousand feet long, in the middle of the river, would it affect the river's flow? Would it affect the volume of the water, the direction the water is flowing, the speed at which it's flowing? Would it interfere with any kind of navigation, whether it's kayaks or anything, any other bigger types of of shipping that might occur in that water body? And then the Army Corps would issue its decision. It could say, no, absolutely not, or yes, with these conditions. And if if there's yes with the conditions or yes with no conditions, it would issue a permit.
1: That does not sound like a very fast process, I will say.
3: No. No. No, we're talking about the federal government. So it's 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 not usually a, a fast process.
1: This is about immigration, but the DOJ is suing using this law about navigation. Why, why are we not talking about the elephant in the room?
3: Um, I actually thought this was a smart move by the federal government mm. because it avoids the elephant in the room because the issue of immigration is a difficult issue. We don't have clear answers in terms of how do we stop the immigration or how do we deal with migrants or how do we address the safety issues of migrants? How do we address the concerns that citizens in the U.S. have with regard to these migrants? These are all sorts of issues that, that we do have to deal with, but the federal government didn't want the court to deal with it because this is a, I, I would argue, this is a political issue not a legal issue. And we need to resolve it in the context of legislation, in context of politics, Mm. and not have a judge decide wrong or right or who's violating what law. Now, I will say that the Abbott administration is trying to make this an immigration issue, is trying to make this a border security issue. And by not including those points in the lawsuit, the DOJ is trying to circumvent uh, and not have to deal with those those points.
1: I think that's really interesting because like you said Abbott very much wants to make this about immigration and mm-hmm. despite the the fact that the lawsuit doesn't really touch on that at all, he's been very adamant about the increased security at the border and that measures like the buoy border are protected under the Constitution. He's called the migrants an invasion of illegal immigrants. Those those are his words. And saying that there's a need to take emergency wartime effort, does he have a case at all with that argument?
3: On the one side, you have the argument that border security and immigration are exclusively in the domain of the federal government. And even if they don't necessarily fulfill their obligations the states are not allowed to step into that into that space because it is a federal obligation and if the federal government is not being responsible and fulfilling their obligation there are mechanisms and avenues that the states can take to try to encourage or even force the government they could sue the federal government to enforce the border security uh, regulations and immigration regulations and so on, that would be, in my mind the the proper approach now there is another argument that says that, in the case that the federal government is not fulfilling their obligations on border security and immigration, there's another clause in the constitution that provides something to the effect that the states i don 't remember the exact wording of it, but the, the, the states If they are actually invaded, and this is why Governor Abbott has used the word invasion, if they are actually invaded, then they are allowed to protect their borders. Now now you have a problem of two provisions in the Constitution that seem like they might be in conflict. And I'm not sure that there's a conflict there, but that's what Governor Abbott is trying to, to make it out to be, that there's these two provisions Federal government's supposed to take these obligations; they're not, and so we're going to rely on this other provision here that says that we are allowed to take security precautions and border protection if we're invaded. And that's why he's couching the, the, this migration, this, these immigrants, as an invasion, invading force.
1: What are the next steps in this lawsuit? Could could we see this go all the way to the Supreme Court?
3: Uh, we could. It's 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 a federal issue. The next step is, if I remember correctly, there's a, a hearing on August 22nd in which the federal government has asked the court to force the governor, force the state of Texas to stop any kind of additional construction and in, in, in implementation of the buoy system and actually to remove it. If the court agrees with the, with the DOJ, the governor and the te- Texas will have 10 days to remove them. So it'll be early September the earliest that you would see them removed. But that's only if the court agrees that they need to be removed pending the decision of. The, and that's just, that's not on the merits of the case. That's just t- sort of temporary action while the case proceeds. After that, the case is going to proceed in a typical fashion where you have discovery, pretrial motions, you have the actual trial, and then you have a decision by the court. That could take months. Clearly, that could take months. And then, of course, you have the appeals process.
1: Is there anything else that you think it's important for our listeners to know about this case? You know, as the news comes out, as they're keeping an eye on it, as they're reading?
3: There's actually two other potential liability areas that have not been raised by any court yet. One is domestic and one is international. The domestic one relates to endangered and threatened species. It's not clear whether Texas should have spoken to the Fish and Wildlife Service to see if there are threatened or endangered species in that area where they've installed the the buoy system and whether they have to get permission from the Fish and Wildlife Service if there are these endangered threatened species. So that's that's another cause of action that uh, it's unclear whether it would apply or not, but uh, nobody's fully raised it uh, as of yet. The other one, which Mexico actually has raised in its diplomatic notes, Under a uh, treaty that the U.S. has with Mexico, a 1970 treaty, the U.S. and Mexico agreed to stabilize the flow of the river, of the Rio Grande, and to mitigate any kind of flooding uh, by preventing obstructions or deflectors, anything that might deflect the flow of the river. Arguably, putting this buoy system in the middle of the river is an obstruction and could cause deflection of the flow. So if we had a, a flood situation, a big rain and lots of water, how would that buoy system affect that excess water? We don't know because we didn't know we had to know about this until the buoys appeared you know, a month ago. And uh, Mexico was never notified. The International Boundary Water Commission, which sits at the border and is supposed to be managing these treaties and these water flows. They were never informed that this is actually being done, and so this could be another violation. Except that this is Texas causing the United States to be in violation of a treaty it has with Mexico.
1: Yeah, that I mean, I it's this big like ooh the White House versus Texas like we're having this battle. But there are three players here: it's yeah. Mexico, Texas, and the United States. Yeah,
3: yeah, there's definitely three players. Um, you know, Texas does have a certain degree of claim to the waters of the Rio Grande because the waters flow along the border of Texas and they have rights to water under Texas law. The problem is that the United States also has rights to the Rio Grande that effectively under our form of government, this federal system we have, it supersedes Texas's authority. And then you have the U.S., Mexico relationship. There is a Texas-Mexico relationship, but not without the U.S.-Mexico relationship. The Texas-Mexico relationship exists only because the U.S. authorizes Texas to have that relationship. It's really between the U.S. and Mexico. And now the U.S. is in violation of a treaty it has with Mexico because of the action that Texas has taken.
1: All right. Gabriel Eckstein, thank you so much for joining me on The Weeds.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Now that we understand the lawsuit from the DOJ, let's get into the issue that underpins everything that's happening at the border. Immigration. That's coming up after a quick break. Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu nap. That's N-A-P-P.
0: Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com.
2: My name is uh, Uriel Garcia, and I'm an immigration reporter with the Texas Tribune. I tend to cover how immigration policy, both at the federal and state level, affects immigrants and people who live along the border. I mean,
1: speaking of the border, you've been to that buoy border in Eagle Pass. Can you describe what it's like? What do you see when you're in Eagle
2: Pass? Uh, It's kind of hard to find. You have to be on a farmer's property. Her name is Magali Urbina. She owns the pecan farm with her husband. And when you get to the end, to the south end of her property, what you see is a chain link fence, river bank, and then uh, a lot of wire on just on the edge of the river bank. And then obviously you see the Rio Grande and in the middle of the Rio Grande, you'll see the buoys.
1: What is the town itself of Eagle Pass like? Because, you know, we've seen these buoys in the news, but this this is a place where people live.
2: Right. It's a a pretty small town. I want to say 30,000 residents. It's a bilingual town. It's very common. You hear Spanglish. And they also have this park that's along the riverbank. And before all this, before the wire, the National Guard and the troopers were there, A lot of people would go to that park to swim, kayak, fish along the river. So the river was a recreational area. And like I said, it's a small town. So a lot of people would do outdoor things when it's not too hot. And it's very common for people to go back and forth between Eagle Pass and Piedras Negras. Like a lot of border towns, people have families and jobs and schooling on both sides of the border. So the bridge is always busy.
1: I noticed when you were talking about the park, you used verbs that are in the past tense. Are people not utilizing that outdoor
2: space anymore? You know, it was interesting when I went there because there's some tension. There's just a lot of National Guard, a lot of troopers, and a lot of wiring. And the ramp that people use to kayak and get their boats on there is cut off. At least when I was there, there wasn't any access to the river from the park anymore. So I don't know that anyone is using it without at the very least having to ask permission from a National Guard or a trooper. And I can't imagine you can just go up to any of them on the ground and say, hey, I wanna go for a swim. I think uh, there's a, a process to be able to do that. So
1: these measures at the border are part of Governor Abbott's Operation Lone Star. Can you tell us about this initiative and the actions that have already taken place?
2: It has one basic mission, and that's to prevent people from coming into Texas illegally. The tactics that the state has used include sending National Guard along the Texas-Mexico border, along with troopers, and other states, such as Florida, have sent their own National Guard to help Texas. What they've been doing is they've been arresting some migrants who have been crossing onto certain areas of the border and charging them with trespassing. Like I said, it also has included other things such as migrants who have been processed and released, the state take some of these migrants to what the state describes as sanctuary cities or liberal cities like New York, Chicago, with the point being that border towns are overwhelmed. So for those so-called sanctuary cities, Texas or Abbott wants to send a message to them saying this is what it feels like having so many immigrants all at once.
1: I guess the way I think of this, there are kind of three entities involved, and that's, you know, the state of Texas, Mexico, and then the federal government. What actions have happened at the federal level? Like, what's their role in Operation Lone Star? Is is Border Patrol working with Texas? Is there a push and pull? What's going on?
2: The federal government has no role and Operation Lone Star. And that's what was interesting to see out in Eagle Pass. National Guard and DPS troopers have overtaken private property and federal land. And so what they're doing is immigrants are on the in Piedras Negras and they're sort of scouting to see where they can cross. And once they cross or walk over through the river, obviously they're faced by a lot of wires, so they have to walk along the edge of the river to an area where there's an opening, and in that opening, National Guard takes them in and turns them over to, uh, to DPS troopers. Originally, they were just arresting single men, men who were coming without their families and charging them with trespassing. And two recent policy changes are that they're also arresting single women now. The third one is that, I don't know how common this is, but it was most recently reported and confirmed by DPS that they've been separating some men from their families and arresting them. Anyone who doesn't fit this sort of profile gets turned over to Border Patrol by DPS. But going back to your question, the only role right now that we see the federal government had been Operation Lone Star is that the Department of Justice recently sued Texas basically demanding to get rid of the buoys and all the wire along the riverbank. So it's a legal fight at this point between the state and the federal government.
1: Does it seem almost, competition doesn't seem like the right words, but people between the federal government and the state trying to get to migrants first.
2: Right, yes. What was interesting to see is that DPS is sort of dictating, they want to get to the migrants first. They want to be able to say, we've arrested so many, and the state basically wants to be able to say, we're securing the border. But that's simply not the case. The measure of securing the border is up for interpretation. But if securing the border means no one crossing the river, then the mission is failing. At the same time, the Biden administration has tried to create some legal pathways for people who want to seek asylum to use those pathways to be able to basically enter the country in a more orderly fashion. But at the same time, the Biden administration has implementing stricter policies to be able to deter migrants from wanting to cross the river or cross the desert, depending on what part of the border you're in. So it wants to have it both ways, and it doesn't seem to be working because more and more people seem to be coming And so it remains to be seen what policy is going to change. But in reality, this phenomenon of mass migration, if you will, is just bigger than the U.S. It's it's a worldwide issue. So whatever policies either the state or the country wants to implement don't seem to be working right now. And they need to be thinking bigger than just how do we deter people from wanting to come.
1: Can you clarify what happens when Border Patrol agents work with migrants versus, you know, the state of Texas? What do those two different paths look
2: like? It's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure, but let's put it, I guess, in the most common way, and that is if someone crosses the river or someone crosses the border illegally, they'll get arrested by Border Patrol, depending on the demographics, if they're coming with family, if they're coming with children. They won't necessarily uh, be prosecuted for entering the country illegally. In some cases they do, but let's say they don't. They get arrested, they get processed, they get background checked, they're held in custody until Border Patrol decides, okay, well, we can't process them right now for deportation. So we're going to let them go with the intention that they're going to show up in court or show up to an immigration office to kickstart the immigration legal process. And that could mean this immigrant may ask for asylum, which it's on average a five-year process, or they could be ordered deported. And in that case, Immigration and Customs Enforcement gets involved. They'll arrest them, they'll get charged with entering the country illegally, and they could face criminal proceedings and potentially prison time. And if not, they'll just try to get them to agree to get deported back to their home countries. But uh, keep in mind that most recently, we're talking about uh, Venezuelans coming in. And right now, there's no diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Venezuela, which makes it hard to deport Venezuelans back to their home country because the U.S. doesn't have access to Venezuelan land right now. And so what ends up happening is that, okay, well, we just have to keep, you know, I hate to say like this, like if they're property, they're not. But, you know, from the perspective of immigration, they just have to keep the Venezuelans in the country and let them seek some sort of alternative to stay in the U.S.
1: After one more quick break, we'll discuss where immigration policy stands now. And how the expiration of Title 42, which was in place since the early days of the pandemic, has affected the number of migrants attempting to cross the border.
2: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. we got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work
1: So Texas has launched Operation Lone Star, and the state is claiming that there's been an invasion of migrants at the border. But those numbers of asylum seekers appear to be trending downward. What is the truth here? Can you break those numbers down for us?
2: I'll say right off the bat, there's no invasion An invasion is described as some sort of uh, government using violence to be able to overthrow another government. That's not happening. There's no government, either Mexico or Venezuela, trying to do that. As far as the numbers, keep in mind that there was a record-breaking number of apprehensions of migrants at the southern border under the Biden administration. And to introduce another element to the issue is that after Title 42, those numbers started going down, and they've been the lowest, at least for the first few months after Title 42 under the Biden administration. And the numbers in July started to go up again.
1: Yeah. And in May, we saw the end of Title 42. Can you explain how that worked when people showed up at the border?
2: So what Title 42 was or is a public emergency health order and under the Trump administration. And what it did was that any person showing up to the border, either through the bridge or crossing the border illegally, and then they get turned over to, or turn themselves over to immigration officials. And if they were seeking asylum or any sort of immigration benefit at the border, Border Patrol agents or any other immigration agents had to turn away that migrant, regardless of what they were asking for. And so they were just being returned to Mexican border towns. And there was no legal ramification with that. If you would just turn yourself in, Border Patrol would say, no, we're taking you back. And that was the end of that. And that person, if they're desperate enough or, and if they're in, in perilous situations, they would try again repeatedly until they were able to come in. But that's essentially how it worked, As migrants would come to the border. Immigration agents would say, I can't do anything for you. I'm dropping you off in Mexico. And it was just a cycle.
1: Once that was sunsetted, what's happened since then? How does the asylum
2: process work now? So ever since then, the country has gone back to using the decades-long immigration laws that were on the book. Basically, what happens now is you cross the border illegally, you get arrested, you could get prosecuted for entering the country illegally. If it's more than your first time, it's a felony at that point, and you can face prison time and eventually deport it. In some other cases, once you're in those proceedings, you can ask for asylum. And during that process, you know, like I said, it kicks off a... On average, a five-year-long process. You ha- you have to be able to prove that you were you you didn't have protections uh, from your government, or you were being persecuted for certain things, such as your religion, your political views, or some other social points of views that you had in your home country. If you failed, you basically get deported. So, in a lot of cases, basically, what ends up happening is you get deported or you get asylum, or you face um, prison time. And getting deported, that's a legal term. And basically that's something that immigration agents will look down the road if you apply for residency, citizenship, or even asylum down the road. So the stakes are higher. You could face prison time, get deported, and the consequences are much harsher now.
1: So it seems like the narrative about federal immigration policy is kind of getting lost here. And also the need for reform is getting lost in this mess too. Are there any aspects of federal policy that are working in Texas right now?
2: Well, there are some federal policies that seem to be working, not just in Texas, but just in general. And one of those is the Biden administration has created sort of, or not created, in some cases created, and in some cases expanded reunification family programs. And this only applies to certain nationalities, that if you're already in the U.S. and you have a legal right to be in the U.S., whatever that may be, if you're in the asylum process or have a green card, you have a right to petition for your family back home to be able to come to the US. And what that creates is basically they'll do the immigration process for the person in their home country. And once they qualify, they're able to fly into the US, which cuts off any sort of treacherous track for some of these migrants. So that's a policy that advocates and experts have said, you know, these are the kinds of things that the Biden administration needs to expand on. It cuts off the smuggler. It cuts off any sort of dangerous route that the migrant has to take. It puts less pressure on immigration agents along the actual border. So that's a policy that seems to be working.
1: I think one of the things that's interesting to me is it's no secret that immigration policy is a weak point for the Biden administration. And that's the case wherever you sit on it. Like immigration advocates have their critiques. People who are hawkish on immigration have their critiques. And, you know, at the end of the day, Governor Abbott is a politician. And I'm wondering how you're thinking of how the politics are shaping this. Like, you know, last year when we saw the buses from Texas and Florida, it was it was very obviously a hit at the White House on top of policy. And I'm just wondering how you see politics shaping this both nationally but also state politics.
2: I'll be frank. I'm not I'm not a political reporter and. And the way I see these sort of things comes from sort of a more grounded point of view. I'm not gonna be able to tell you who has the advantage here. I can tell you who's losing out here, and that's both us Americans and the migrants themselves. You know, we have a labor shortage. There's thousands of migrants looking for work. One aspect that I didn't mention is that even if they do have a legal right to be in the U.S. after crossing the border, is that they don't immediately get a work permit. That takes months, if not years, to get the work permit. So a lot of them are just waiting to get their work permit to work. You know, this is, uh, takes a lot of mental and emotional anguish on them. The country needs labor, and there's migrants wanting to work, but we're not letting them. As far as the politics, it just seems like two different worlds. We have the reality of what's going on on the ground, and we have the political world in which uh, Abbott and Biden are fighting over this. And and to what end? It doesn't seem clear right now because Abbott hasn't announced that he's running for higher office. And the Biden administration has implemented stricter penalties in some cases, or stricter policies, I should say. And it, it just seems to be a lot of infighting. Meanwhile, people who depend on the migrants and the migrants wanting to come in seem to be losing out on all of this.
1: If you could offer the Texas government any advice when it comes to this, what would you say? I mean, because you're on the ground, you're doing this reporting, you're seeing so much firsthand.
2: Yeah, I mean, some of the things that I saw uh, on the Rio Grande or even from Piedras Negras, I saw men and women in crutches walking along the river. I met a man who... I believe, if I recall correctly, 34-year-old man from Venezuela was walking in crutches. He had a scar around his head, a scar around his waist. About a year ago, he was hit by a motorcyclist as he was walking down the street. He needed 84 screws on his face to hold his face together, and he's had four surgeries. Oh, my gosh. And... Venezuela, you know, we can do a whole episode on the disarray that's going on in Venezuela, but to the point here is that there's no good healthcare right now in Venezuela and he needs medical attention. He's coming to the U.S. for that medical attention and to see him walk along the river while National Guard is just looking and not doing anything to help was just jarring to see. I think objectively speaking, anyone who would see this, seeing a man struggle to walk along the river would offer some sort of help or ask him, are you okay at the very least? And I did not see that. And it was a hard reality to see because I think in the US, we sort of idolize service members and any sort of law enforcement capacity. And we see them as heroes in some cases. And in this case, that was not the reality. National Guard was there just staring at this man's struggle, making him walk a few miles down the river until he got to an opening, rather than just cut the wire and let him in. The only advice I would just say is that, you know, if, if, if you have any sort of humanity and you see this, the politics go away, they wash away. You want to be able to help, and that's something that Magali Orrina, the woman that I mentioned earlier, who owns the pecan farm. She's a Republican and she voted for Abbott. And, you know, when she saw the reality of what these policies are doing to migrants, I recall she told me that she's not a Democrat or Republican, she's a humanitarian now. And what she's doing now is helping people.
1: Uriel Garcia, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds.
2: Thank you guys for inviting me.
1: That's all for us today. Thank you to Gabriel Eckstein and Yudiel Garcia for joining me. This episode was produced by Caitlin Boguki, additional production help from Sophie Lalonde, Christian Ayala engineered this episode, Serena Solon and Kim Eggleston fact-checked it, our editorial director is A.M. Hall, and I'm your host, Jonquan Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.